Hello, this is Congressman Jim Clyburn, and I would like to welcome you to my podcast, Clyburn Chronicles. I have always been a lover of history. I see this platform as a way to connect history with the politics of today. This is so important because as Judge Santiano once said, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Each episode, my guest and I will have a conversation about the lessons of the past, the politics of the present, and how we must learn from those experiences to help shape the future. Thank you for taking time to listen, and welcome to Clyburn Chronicles. And welcome to another edition of Clyburn Chronicles. Today, I'm joined by Leslie Baskerville, the president, CEO, and counsel for the National Association for Equal Opportunity in Higher Education, or as we call it, NAFIO. Last week, President Biden issued a proclamation on National Historically Black Colleges and universities week. I often say that HBCUs are the cutters and polishes of diamonds, diamonds in the rough. As everybody knows, every diamond must be dug, cut, and polished. And that's what makes them valuable. The diamonds aren't worth much until they're dull, cut, and polished, and they become very valuable commodities. That's how I see HBCUs across this great country of ours. I'm a proud graduate of South Carolina State University. I met my late wife, Dr. Emily England Clyburn, uh, when we were students there. And I'm proud of the fact that today uh, that school has renamed its Honors College uh, in her honor. But when I think about HBCUs, I think about an experience I had uh, with Ron McNair. I tell this story often. Ron McNair, who lost his life in a Challenger accident, was a very popular astronaut mm-hmm. on his first flight into space. It may have been his second, but he played the alto saxophone while in space uh-huh. and uh, really uh, captured the imagination of all Americans. Uh, and on this flight of his, the accident that took his and other astronauts' life, it was going to be his last flight. Uh, he had already been offered a professorship at the University of South Carolina. And uh, on the day that he was closing the deal with them, he stopped by my office. And we had a conversation about his life growing up in the little town, little tobacco town of Lake City, South Carolina, where he graduated from Carver High School named for George Washington Carver, uh, the great uh, African-American scientist. Uh, And of course, was not allowed to use a library in that little town. He said to me on that day that everywhere I go, people introduce me as this PhD from MIT, PhD in physics from Mm -hmm. MIT. But then they said, that's not what got me here. What got me here in this astronaut program to where I am in life was those four years I spent on the campus of North Carolina A&T, where I had professors and administrators whose life experiences were similar to mine, where the classrooms were small and they were able to help with whatever remediation I needed because of the lack of the foundation that I brought from that little tobacco town of Lake City. That, he said, 
It's what made my success possible. Yes. That's what HBCUs are all about. And I'm very pleased that today I have with me uh, the president and council of NAFIO, Leslie Baskerville. Now we're gonna talk about uh, HBCUs. I'm gonna let her tell a little bit about herself because HBCUs are very important to her. I know about this recent honor that she got uh, from uh, Howard University. And of course I did the convocation at yeah. Howard uh, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and at the end of this program, we're gonna reserve some, reserve some time because we wanna talk about um, uh, student debt forgiveness and elimination. It's a big deal. Joe Biden, the Biden and Harris administration, doing great things in that regard. And we want to close the program today talking about that program because uh, there's a deadline coming up on October 31st that we want you to be aware of. But we're going to begin this thing uh, just talking about what HBCUs mean to this country uh, to, and what it meant to the two of us. Leslie? Tell my audience a little bit about who and what you are and what HBCUs mean to you in the country. Thank you so very much, Rip Clyburn, and thank you for this blessed experience. <laughs> I, I know that members of your audience are familiar with your book, Blessed Experience, and if they're not, they really need to be. It's a rich history of your walk and where you came from and how you leveraged all the opportunities with you and brought your whole self, your mental, physical, and spiritual, and moved along. But as you were moving, how you brought so many with you. And I'm just grateful to be here, Whip, because I have been privileged to walk with you and work with you for the last so many years. And you're making a significant uh, impact in my life as well as so many others. I thank you. I am um, just delighted to be here. I, um, you referenced um, an award that I received from my alma mater, which was Howard University School of Law. I um, chose to go to Howard University School of Law when I had many options. I was blessed. Uh, I worked hard and I was focused and I tested well, but I went to Howard University because I wanted to go to the preeminent institution that was preparing social justice janissaries. And I knew by the time I was 14 years old that I wanted to be an economic and social justice janissary. And I positioned myself to do that. I came from a family like yours where my parents were engaged in the economic and social justice uh, actions of their day. My father was the head of the Fair Housing Commission, uh, the head of the um, Civil Rights Commission in the state of New Jersey where I grew up. And uh, advocacy was in my blood. And I saw what could happen if you leveraged uh, your voice, your abundant blessings, and brought together a collaborative. So I went to Howard University School of Law. I excelled and um, just was so humbled when two years ago now, Alma Mater bestowed upon me a Lifetime Achievement Award, not just the General Lifetime Achievement Award, but for their recognition of the manner in which I leveraged the gift of the Howard University School of Law um, um, diploma, the award with the distinction to continue and to move the uh, movement to the next levels. Howard University and so many of our other institutions are about educating, providing pedagogy and those types of things, but also at their core is liberation. So it's education, liberation, and education theology, so that by the time you finish one of our 106 HBCUs, you are well-equipped in your discipline, but you also have an understanding of your responsibility to use whatever gifts and talents and resources you have to move the nation, and, and most especially those who've lived in the margins of their lives, move them forward. Education, liberation, education, theology, and in, integrated into the curricula are 
experiential learning um, programs for our students to be in the communities, in the trenches, working on all of the social justice and economic justice issues of their day. If you look at every major social justice, economic justice issue in America, you will see HBCU students, HBCU faculty, and we're continuing in that vein today. I'm excited about where we are in terms of HBCUs today, and and I just I don't I, I want to say a little something about it. I don't know if your um, audience appreciates the value of HBCUs, but there are 106 of them. They're richly diverse. They span the gamut from two-year institutions to research-intensive institutions, and um, all of the institutions in between. They are in north, they're in the south, mostly the south and southwest, but in the Midwest, Northeast, Middle States, and on the West Coast as well. Um, and so, but each one of them has their unique missions. HBCUs are, are not uh, black institutions. They are in fact mission-based institutions that were founded for the purpose of educating the progeny of the American slave system for black folks and others. And since their founding, they've been open to all without regard to race, ethnicity, gender, socioeconomic status, or any non-bona fide criteria, but disproportionately educating the progeny of the American slave system, Black folks. And we're graduating them in disproportionate numbers in the growth and high needs areas. We have very strong education programs. Our original uh, curricula were based on education and theology, and we maintain that today. And we're not going to stray from that. But our institutions today are graduating disproportionate percentages of Blacks in healthcare, science, technology, engineering, mathematics, justice, um, in the growth and high needs area. So 3% of American colleges and universities are graduating 42% of Blacks in the sciences, technology, engineering, and mathematics with advanced degrees. 3% of American colleges are, and universities are graduating 60% of Black attorneys, and 60% of those attorneys are female. Um, these 3% of our institution are graduating 50% of public education professionals, and 52% of Blacks in communications. So we're doing tremendous in agriculture. Don't want to forget agriculture. Um, that's an especially on my spirit today because I saw that um, at the UN, President Biden and, and Vice President Harris talked about food insecurity and they issued a proclamation about United States redoubling its efforts on food security. Well, there's a tremendous opportunity for our 19 um, land-grant institutions. We have 19 land-grant institutions, and they're anchored in uh, preparing food and nutrition and, and the environment, shoring up our communities um, and reducing food insecurity, uh, teaching people in our communities how to prepare food, how to make nutritious meals, how to uh, prepare for the labor force in those growing and important areas. So um, we do graduate disproportionate percentages of Blacks in agricultural sciences as well. Um, so I come today with joy for so many reasons. I, I, um, Whip Clyburn allowed me to set up a minute to talk about my uh, award for my alma mater, but we're just finishing the White House initiatives on HBCUs. Had a tremendous convening with about 2,000 persons um, in Washington and another 1,500 virtually um, with, with so much exchange that left us at the end of the day more on one page. That's what NAFIO does. NAFIO was founded not to raise scholarship dollars or um, to, to participate in that arena, but to serve as a voice for Blacks in higher education, to bring together the richly diverse presidents and chancellors of the 105 historically Black colleges and now 80 predominantly Black institutions to suppress their individual priorities, their individual goals, and look at the totality of this diverse community and to develop from that 
one voice indivisible on the biggest issues of concern, the, the issues of most importance. And generally we operate around a five year agenda. Um, but at this year's White House initiatives, I was just surprised and so surprised I was not present when I was awarded uh, the Chairman's Award for the President's Board of Advisors on HBCUs. And anytime anybody acknowledges me, I'm, I'm, I'm humbled and I'm just greatly uplifted. But when the people for and whom, with whom you work, and you dedicate your life. My walk is my passion, um, like yours is. And so when your profession and passion align and you dedicate all that you have to that and someone acknowledges you, it's a great thing. And I wasn't present because I was preparing for the session after the luncheon at which they announced the award. So I take this time to say to those who voted for me, I'm deeply deeply touched and humbled and grateful, uh, energized for the next segment of the walk. That's great. Congratulations for that uh, award as well. I was, uh, that one, I'm, uh, that one missed me, uh, but uh, I'm sure I was gonna find out about it later this week uh, when so many of us will be there in Washington as the Congressional Black Caucus, celebrating over 50 years now uh, mm -hmm. of existence. We have a 50th anniversary this weekend and mm -hmm. of our founding and all of, uh, of us will be gathered uh, getting caught up uh, on what has been going on uh, over the past several years now because as you know uh, because of COVID-19 uh, we have been away uh, from interacting closely with each other most things have been virtual and so this is going to give us an, an opportunity this weekend uh, to try to get back to normal. So mm -hmm. I'm sure that you'd be a lot, you can run into a lot of people this yeah. weekend who will be offering congratulations to you uh, on that very, very uh, prestigious uh, recognition. But Most you importantly, I'm gonna do two workshops and I'm excited about them. We always right. do workshops and well, tell us about we, we learn as much as we uh, give. One we're uh, doing with the American Federation of Teachers talking about the centrality of black educators, the need for black educators, especially black men in the education field and how um, the, the, the presence of black males in the classroom makes a difference, uh, not only for black students and, and black boys and young men, but also for white students, Hispanic students, and others uh, to get the, the benefit of the teaching styles, the information, the engagement of Black male and Black female teachers. But uh, we're going to do that, and um, I'm excited to participate in that. And then the second panel we're on is going to take a look at the Maryland case, um, the Maryland higher ed desegregation case in which the Maryland, the alumni of Morgan State University, Bowie State University, Coppin State University, and the University of Maryland Eastern Shore brought a lawsuit against the state because of the disparities in funding. The, the public, these Maryland, uh, and at least 18 other states maintain dual and unequal higher education systems today. As you know, once separate and historically white, separate, historically Black, but the historically Black institutions are still not invested in such that they're comparable to and competitive with the historically white institutions. Nafio actually brought the first Office for Civil Rights uh, complaint against the state of Maryland and 18 other states because of the disparities in funding. And now 40 years later, after winnowing its way through a long, arduous process of administrative hearings, uh, engagements with state legislators in Maryland and other states, uh, governors and so forth. Um, under the leadership of Mr. Jones, who's a counsel at Kirkland and Ellis, but he's also a Dillard University alum, and not just an alumnus of Dillard, he's now the chair of the board, giving back at a big law firm. He gave back his time and his talent to bring this case for the last 15 years or so to completion pro bono. He gave his, his time and his talent, not just for Dillard, 
because Dillard's a private institution and it's impacted, but most directly impacted are public institutions. He gave his time and his talent and brought his firm to, to bear for that uh, victorious case. The settlement is the largest settlement ever in a civil rights case of that type, $577 million. And when he got the resources, his firm could have just divvied up those resources, but the firm uh, took the resources and said, let us use it by investing a large amount of this in HBCUs and associations that are standing up and strengthening and speaking out on behalf of HBCUs. And that's what they did. So those are the two sessions I'm going to be involved in. I'm excited about it. And I know I'll learn a lot, as I always do. Well, great. Thank you so much for mentioning that. And I want our listeners to know uh, that this is a very, very important case. That's a lot of money. As you said, it was the biggest, $578 million. But it was not the first. That's exactly uh, right. If my memory serves, it was called the AS case yes. involving Mississippi. Absolutely. Uh, they got Absolutely. over 500 million. Yes. Uh, so you're talking about a billion dollars in these two cases. And people saying, what are you doing? What yeah. do HBCU yeah. do? What does the Congressional Black Caucus uh, uh, do? What uh, are these black organizations like NAFIO? That's what we are doing. And Congressman Thompson was a Congress, yeah, and Congressman Thompson was a plaintiff in he was a plaintiff in that case. Absolutely. Um, and here he is today, a graduate of Tougaloo College down there yes. in Jackson, Mississippi, now mm -hmm. chairing the January 6th committee. Isn't and that's that? a little bit like uh, Ron McNair, uh, his experience. That's what HBCUs are all about. And yes. I would wish people would just take a little time and think through some of these things. You allowed mm -hmm. me to open the door to something else too. Uh, okay. When you talked about food insecurity and you also uh, talked about the uh, uh, environmental issues. Look, South Carolina State, Clemson University, the two land grant schools in South Carolina, mm -hmm. we are gonna be announcing next week. Uh, of course, it's already been made public, but the two presidents, the president of Clemson, the president of South Carolina State, and yours truly, will have a joint press conference announcing $70 million program dealing with food insecurity in rural South Carolina. We hope this program uh, will allow uh, the other, uh, what we call 1890 land-grant schools uh, mm -hmm. to take a look at the kinds of partnerships they can form uh, with the other land-grant schools that may be uh, in their communities. I don't know all the other. I know uh, that um, Florida a m is a land-grant uh, yeah. down in Florida. I think that um, uh, in Georgia, uh, it, it is a lot of people would think it as uh, be one, but it's, I forgot the name of the, the land-grant there. Uh, I know Sanford Bishop represents it. We're looking at ways uh, to really uh, leverage uh, these millions of dollars uh, that the Biden-Harris administration is making available. $6.5 billion. Well, wait, uh, before you go away from South Carolina, I just think it's so important because you opened up the door for me to talk about <laughs> what, what, what you and other members are doing. You talked about the $70 million, and that's tremendous. But I think every day, and I think it's important for people to know that you're a whip, United States whip, you're, you're, you're counting votes, moving votes, and getting people to vote for issues that are so concerned, uh, so important to everyone, especially those who have least among us. But while you were doing that, you and, and Ms. Emily were giving your personal dollars to South Carolina State, and not just South Carolina State, other um, HBCUs in in um, South Carolina, but all around and giving your time, your talent and other treasures so that we benefit. And people need to understand that as if your, your uh, leadership role in the United States Congress and your service to your constituents does not take enough time. Your constituents and the constituents of the 59 member Congressional Black Caucus are not just those people who actually can vote for them. It's the entire African ancestry community. So it's Blacks in America, Blacks on the continent, 
Blacks in the diaspora and others who share our views about the imperative for um, moving those who have traditionally been locked out and left behind to a greater position, to closing the wealth gaps, the health gaps, the, the economic gaps, the education gaps, the justice gaps. And um, so I just, you set me up so I could say that. So I thank you. <laughs> well, thank you very much for that. Uh, we uh, have endowed, uh, Emily and I endowed this the scholarships at each one of the HBCUs here in South Carolina, but we did not limit it to that. We did the same thing at the Medical University of South Carolina uh, and the University of South Carolina on the, uh, public health. Now, a student uh, can enroll at Claflin University, uh, an HBCU, uh, mm -hmm. and in a five-year program, spend the first three years on the campus of Claflin and the second two years at the University of South Carolina, and in five years, get it both a bachelor's and a master's degree in public health. Uh, these kinds of programs, uh, or the kinds of programs we, uh, people like yourself, uh, Nafio, thinking through all kinds of innovative ways as to how to get people of color into uh, these, as you say, STEM programs uh, that you don't really think of uh, as being STEM so much. They are really basic uh, to us, closing the wealth gap, closing the health gap as well, closing these gaps uh, that have been institutionalized uh, in, um, uh, in our society, and we're trying to, to work around them and beyond them. I want you to uh, take a few minutes, and uh, because this is where a lot of confusion comes, and nobody's better prepared to do this than you. Explain <laughs> uh -oh. the differences between HBCUs, TCUs, PBIs, and MSIs. So people will understand what it is. Because so often I get into discussions with people and they are talking about something that's, so wait a minute, you're talking about a minority servant institution, yes. which is totally different from a historical black college and university. I mean, uh, every college in South Carolina serve minorities. Yes. But every college in South Carolina is not an HBCU. Explain the difference for us. I thank you so much for uh, asking me to respond to that because that is a matter that comes up and uh, it's something that uh, friends of ours who are legislators and uh, administrators and uh, parents and others are are not really don't really have a keen understanding. So, I mentioned earlier historically black colleges and universities um, they are are not race based. They are not minority serving. They are mission based institutions. Their mission is to educate black folks, the progeny of the American slave system, and others. Uh, but they don't have to be black majority. We presently have four uh, majority historically white institutions and we have two uh, institutions that have white presidents. As long as the mission of our institution is educating black folks and as long as they stay on mission, um, they will realize their um, reason for being. And this is important to note because um, we want any and every African ancestry person, Black person who wants to come to an HBCU and who can um, compete and, and thrive in that environment to do that. But we've got outstanding programs in a broad um, swath of, of growth in high needs areas. And we want as many students um, and workers who want to come back to learn to look at our outstanding programs in the growth and high needs areas. So HBCUs are mission-based institutions. In the category with mission-based institutions are also tribal colleges. So HBCUs were, were born out of America's, sorry, history of, of discrimination, segregation, on through today's and vestigial discrimination, which remains manifest. Certainly with our native brothers and sisters, the same pertains. They were 
moved. We were, America took the land of our native brothers and sisters and uh, put them in undesirable positions, to put it mildly. But um, they are not race or ethnicity-based. They, too, are mission-based. Then we have this cluster that is now called minority-serving institutions, um, but they're quite different. They do have a race or ethnicity criterion. And I must say that NAFIO in its 53-year history did work on helping to shape the Hispanic-serving institutions, the Asian Pacific Islander institutions, and the predominantly Black institutions, because these institutions were intended to, to encourage states to be more proactive in including those populations that were normally locked out. But they have hard and fast race uh, criteria in the instance of, of um, Hispanic-serving institutions and Asian Pacific Islanders and uh, Native Hawaiians, there's a 25% threshold for having um, that ethnic minority in the school. There's also a requirement that a percentage, disproportionate percentage of those students are low income, first-generation students. And there's a third criterion that the institutions have, um, they are under underfunded relative to the others in their class. Now, this becomes important because as we are moving forward, trying to get dollars for a cohort of institutions, HBCUs and tribal colleges that have been intentionally denied access to resources in the nation for years, and they are continuing to suffer the vestigial impact, the lingering impact of this intentional discrimination. We're seeking things. In, in HBCUs, for example, 90, about 90% 90 of our institutions have, have unmet uh, deferred maintenance. Our infrastructures are, are not competitive with those whose institutions have endowments that are uh, nearly seven times our endowments on average. Um, the technological infrastructure, those types of things have to and must be undergirded. There's a proven need. There are federal reports that show the need and the history and the contemporary vestigial impacts argue for that. Our brothers and sisters in Hispanic serving and Asian Pacific Islanders and the native Hawaiian institutions have challenges to be sure. And as an alliance of richly diverse institutions, we will work with them. But they, in many instances, are historically white institutions that don't have a mission of educating the students that they happen to have, in, in the case of Hispanic serving, 25% uh, Hispanic enrollment. In the case of PBIs, 40% Black. And so it's a numbers piece. They, they have they sh share no common history. They share no common struggle in terms of being intentionally included. And as the numbers are growing and people are excited to have the diversity, uh, they are forgetting altogether about the underfunding requirements. So we are put in a position where we must clarify that. And so our allies and, and those who believe in diversity, understand that while we have many things in common and while collectively this cohort is responsible for the diversity in government, the diversity in uh, the military, the diversity in corporate America and so forth, the institutions are not the same. Their missions are not the same. Their positioning relative to resources are not the same. And so there are some things that we support uh, collaboratively, like the wireless and digital technology uh, bill that um, deals with the national telecommunications information transformation. But on some things, on infrastructure, where HBCUs and tribal colleges make a clear, clear case for the dollars time and again, that's not the case with others. So there are distinct differences. We collaborate. We are delighted to see that our brown brothers and sisters are, 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 are 
being, as their numbers grow, certainly we want the state institutions and other institutions to enroll them in greater numbers and move as many people as we can from the margins into the mainstream and upstream. But there's so many differences that we can't allow legislation intended for the institutions that have been intentionally denied and are still pushing to get to a position of comparability and competitiveness, which is the language the Supreme Court used when they talked about how you've got to invest in HBCUs, such that public HBCUs, such that they are comparable to and competitive with the historically white, and we're not there yet. Absolutely not. And thank you so much for that very uh, good explanation of the differences that exist between these institutions. Uh, they are not in competition with each other. They are supplemental of each other. Uh, they are uh, really, uh, they work together uh, mm -hmm. to get a common goal uh, accomplished uh, by all these institutions. I don't mm -hmm. like to tax my uh, listeners too long, uh, but what I'm going to say here today, that I'm convinced uh, that you and I uh, are going to have to get together this way uh, a little more often. Mm -hmm. This is the first time we've attempted to do this, uh, do this, and I think we've laid a pretty broad, a solid foundation upon which to build going forward. And a lot of that will have to do uh, with student loan debt. As you know, I uh, proposed several years ago uh, a $50,000 um, forgiveness uh, for student loan debt. Uh, Elizabeth Warren uh, carried that bill uh, in the Senate. Uh, we talked about it uh, for years. Uh, and during the campaign, uh, two years ago, it became an integral part of the campaign. Uh, Joe Biden, uh, we can never uh, convince to go uh, all the way to 50. He did in this campaign said he would uh, look at $10,000 uh, in uh, debt forgiveness. And of course, uh, recently, he announced $10,000. But he did something he never said during the campaign and nobody expected. He said, if you are a Pell Grant recipient, yes. and I think 70, 75%, might be more uh, of uh, uh, African-American students, uh, use Pell Grants. You can go up to $20,000 if you're a Pell Grant recipient. Uh, that was great. But something else had taken place uh, back in uh, October 2021 that nobody was talking about. Uh, years ago, Congress, in its wisdom, uh, laid out something called a, a uh, public service uh, student debt forgiveness program. Yes. That program says that if you uh, are in debt, you borrowed money to go to school, and you're paying back that note uh, over a period of 10 years, and you've uh, done well, but you hadn't been able to get rid of the debt, that you can apply for a forgiveness of the rest of that debt. Now, the first year that that program uh, was uh, uh, actualized uh, was 2017. In 2017, of all the people that applied for that forgiveness, only 1%, only 1% got approved. That is not what was intended. Now, to add insult to injury, the administration at that time, the former presidential administration, then moved to eliminate the program altogether. We rose up in the Congress and stopped it to keep the program in place. And in 2020, we had a new election. And Joe Biden got elected. And he then went about the business of taking a look at that program to put in the modifications that were necessary for the program to achieve 
its original purpose. And in October, last year, 2021, he reopened the program and said to everybody who had been turned down, that 99% that got turned down, reapply under these new guidelines that I've established. And many people did. And in the first eight months of the program, starting in October of 2021, 175,000 people got their loans forgiven to the tune of over $10 billion. Now, we have one year from October 2021 to October 31st, 2022. That is upon us. And people have got to apply in the next five weeks so that we can get, if you're eligible, now it doesn't matter what your job is. You can be the astute, sophisticated, highly educated lawyer that Leslie is. <laughs> so long as you work for a public service institution or a private nonprofit providing public service, you can be a teacher, you can be a doctor working in the community health center, a teacher, a police officer, a fireman, so long as your job is in public service, you are eligible. Yes. I've had two webinars on this. The first one I had 750 people participating. The second one I had over 500 people participating. And then my second one two weeks ago, there was a young lady on there who was a psychologist who had been turned down when she applied the first time. When this program was modified by Joe Biden, she reapplied. And she told the audience, my debt on becoming a psychologist was $100,000. And two weeks ago, I got a letter saying, all is forgiven. So it works. Yes. So I want you, if you care to, uh, uh, add whatever you wish to add to what I've just said about this public service student loan forgiveness program, uh, student loan debt forgiveness program. And please, for all the listeners, you only got five weeks left to apply. Yes. Uh, we expect well over 200,000 people to benefit from this program. And we expect from well over $15 billion to go back uh, of loan forgiveness to take place. Make sure that you're one of them. What you're saying, Whip Clyburn, is so important. And I found that a lot of the people who have not already gone to try and get the forgiveness don't appreciate the fact that it is there. When you say, if you've done these things, go and get the debt forgiven, you, you're you eligible. People just don't believe it. People tell you if there's anything, somebody offers you something for free, it's not real. Um, this is not free. This is debt forgiveness based on your giving, your time, your talent, your energy, your spirit, your soul, all of your resources to America, to strengthen our communities, our schools, our government agencies, our, our international agencies. And uh, if you qualify or if you think you do, you must get the resources. I have uh, a formal member of my team, uh, Dr. Marsh, who is taking it upon herself to go out and uh, round up the troops, get the word out because she wasn't sure she qualified. She called me uh, last year and uh, in very short order, she had her debt forgiven. I want everybody to have the debt forgiven. You're paying with your blood, sweat and tears. And so many of you 
got the preparation for your public service at an HBCU. In fact, HBCUs graduate disproportionate percentages of persons who go into public service. And I want to make sure that every one of you and, and everyone who has gone to any university or has any preparation or, or has learned on the job, if you're serving in a public service capacity, I want you to get the money. Uh, it's yours. It's it's owed to you. And that will free you up to do more good with your dollars and invest in your college or university of choice. Invest in your our children, our, our parents. Um, do something else positive with the dollars. Give back in other ways, but get your money. Uh, and we're, I just want to say one thing. We're not, this is not directly related to the, 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 um, the, um, the student debt, the public service student debt. But while we're talking about the student debt, uh, Congresswoman Maxine Waters chairs the House Financial Services. She's talking about debt of another kind. Recently, she called into question uh, the practices of Equifax. So we've got the big three credit bureaus. So once you get out, then you've got to get credit. Once you pay off this debt and you're trying to get a, a house, you're trying to get uh, um, um, a business loan so that you can close the wealth gap so that you begin to have wealth. She discovered and the committee discovered that Equifax is engaging in some unsavory um, activities with regard to uh, classifying and publishing um, the um, debt or, or, or characterizing the credit worthiness of folks. And I raised that only because last, last week, as we were at a conference in Apio, recently introduced a partnership with ECRID. ECRID is the first Black-owned credit bureau. Ingrid was founded uh, by a gentleman, who, uh, Cleveland Gary, who was a Los Angeles Rams. He, he worked, he, he was a leader in that field. He played baseball, but he went to Wall Street and got into the securities business and he's been spending his years trying to level the playing field. And unbeknownst to him, while he was working on and launched Ingrid, which is the first black owned publicly traded um, credit bureau, Chairwoman Waters was dealing with an issue. So what we have is an issue identified by Chairwoman Waters, a solution offered by ECRID. And Anafio is in a partnership with ECRID hoping and um, that ECRID, which has another way of assessing credit worthiness. Um, we found that the three big ones, um, Equifax and TransUnion and Experian um, have systems that don't include people of low income, middle income who have paid phone bills, have paid um, all kinds of regular telephone bills and, and electricity bills and those types of things. They have a 950 scale, they're doing it, but we have an opportunity for the same persons that are hit hardest with student debt and other barriers to full and unfettered participation in education are now hit with barriers to full and unfettered participation in the workforce and in, in gaining wealth. So I wanna make that connection. I want everybody to stay focused on it. Think about ECRID, read about ECRID, call NAFIO. And if you wanna know about ECRID, feel free to call us. But if you're not sure that you qualify for the public service debt, Call our offices, 202-552-3300, 202-552-3300. We will help you to determine whether you are. And as the whip said, you've got perhaps five, five weeks, but do it right away. We want you to get the relief to which you're entitled. Well, thank you so much for helping us get that word out. Uh, I'm gonna continue uh, to virtually Everywhere I go, I try to close every uh, campaign talk I make uh, with this because this expiration is upon us and it's there. Uh, if there's uh, already $10 billion of forgiveness have already taken place, uh, come on. Uh, it, this is real. Yes. You've got to go uh, and apply. As I said to a fraternity brother of mine who had been beating up on me, about his debt for the last several years, I sent him uh, a uh, video of my webinar. 
And I said, from everything you said to me, uh, you are eligible uh, for this forgiveness. I'm not going to fill out the forms for you. <laughs> this is the information. Go online. And if you're having trouble, get your grandson or your one of your children to help you fill out the forms. And um, I've not heard from him since, so I suspect he took my advice and probably got his debt forgiveness too. Which I grew up in a parsonage, and uh, I've heard a lot of sermons. Uh, and it's always uh, you always wonder uh, who will come back uh, to uh, to acknowledge uh, the information and to thank you. Uh, we're not doing this for thanks. We are doing this to close the wealth growth gap. We're doing this to make sure uh, that um, uh, people who uh, made the uh, sacrifices to get a degree, uh, now working, making the sacrifice to give public service, have built uh, this uh, 10 years of payments, uh, they've built this uh, credibility and uh, this qualification. Use it. Use it. And we think uh, you, the whole country will be better off for it. Uh, so let me thank you, Leslie, for uh, being here with me today. Thank you for all that you do uh, in your capacity with NAFIO, one of my favorite uh, organizations. Uh, you are one of my favorite uh, public servants, and I just want you to know how much I appreciate you and all the presidents uh, of the HBCUs that make up uh, NAFIO. Uh, you guys are doing great work. You never get all the credit that you do for it. But I know from the people I talk to around the country, they don't know who to thank, but they know what to thank. <laughs> and they know that the HBCUs uh, have been great uh, for them. Uh, and they may not know who the people are behind all of this, but you were one of them. And so for them, I thank you. Well, Whip Clyburn, I have to reciprocate with thanks because, but for you uh, in your Whip's position now, but throughout your years, but for your myopic focus on the issues of greatest concern to those who are of least advantage, we wouldn't be here. We've got 50 nine members of the Congressional Black Caucus, but we've got you in the third ranking position in the United States Congress and nothing happens unless you decide this is good for America. And you've been doing it. You were light years ahead. I think about 10, 20, 30, <laughs> when you looked at how, how we had these congressional districts that had entrenched Poverty, And I thought about it again when the president and vice president Harris talked about food insecurity. You're ahead of us all, but you're always focused and delivering. And I can't thank you enough on behalf of not just the HBCUs and the 7 million alumni, um, but for America. But for you, we would not be where we are. Uh, but for you, the election may have gone another way. And so, so many of us are grateful that we are in the position we are, that you are in the position. And I thank you again for all that you do for all of us. Well, thank you so much. I'm so sorry that we're out of time because you. I want you to keep on talking, but uh, <laughs> we, are, we are out Invite of time. Invite me back. I love it. Invite <laughs> me back. Thank uh, thanks to all of my listeners. You have been listening to another edition of Clyburn Chronicles. Thank you so much for spending this time with us. Godspeed. Thank you for listening to this episode of Clyburn Chronicles. If you enjoyed this episode, please let us know by leaving a comment. And don't forget to subscribe to my show wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode. Until next time, I'm Congressman Jim Clyburn.